But what's remarkable about it is that he, Jeff Bezos, created mechanisms, strategies, especially for communication, that he not only pioneered at Amazon, but fueled the company's astonishing growth. I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolve Broker Podcast. I am your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. In this episode, I spoke with one of the most renowned authors and public speaking experts in the world. My guest is a three-time Wall Street Journal best-selling author, internationally popular keynote speaker, Harvard instructor, and leadership advisor for some of the world's most admired brands. My guest is named Carmine Gallo. Carmine is about to release his new book, The Bezos Blueprint. Until now, no author has focused squarely on the writing and storytelling skills that set Bezos apart. No book has analyzed the 48,000 words Bezos wrote over 24 years of shareholder letters and no author has interviewed as many former Amazon executives and CEOs who have adopted the Bezos communication model to build their own companies. We caught up, discussed the inspiration for his new book, and broke down the major takeaways from that new book for the insurance world. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on, and feel free to reach out to me at Pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. Without further ado, here's Carmine. Carmine, welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. Patrick, thanks for inviting me again, and it's great to be with you in person. What a concept. I actually think <laughs> this is a real sign that we're coming through the pandemic, we're officially out, because our last episode when we did this in person was John Porter. So if anyone in the audience is listening, Great episode with John Porter, who actually worked at Apple. Mm -hmm. And so the audience knows, Carmine wrote a book about Steve Jobs and his presentation secrets. Porter has a unique perspective because he worked with him and has some very, very, very interesting stories about him. But Carmine, I couldn't be happier to have you in person in the Evolve Broker Podcast studio. And I was able to get a tour of the building and what you folks do here, it's been terrific. Thanks. Of course. Last time we talked, we went deep into talk like Ted, public speaking tips and tricks. And I mentioned in that episode that I had a best man speech coming up. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, and we d I didn't follow up, so tell me what happened. So it's actually on Saturday. So I would, frankly, I would give you a full, I would give you the full speech right now that we have uh, written up. It's only about five minutes, but I'm a co-best man. So I have another buddy of mine. We actually all went to kindergarten with the guy who's getting married, but we've put together our presentation and we've split up lines. 
Nice. So we've done some practice and it's going to be so that the general outline, just so you get a gist, is we are doing a, a spoken intro that's going to lead into a song. And the song is going to be a rendition of 50 Cent's 21 Questions with the lyrics change up purely to be stories about the guy that's getting married. That sounds totally ridiculous. It sounds very creative. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. What do you think of the, the outline? I think it's very creative and uh, you're raising a very high bar for anybody else who gives a best man speech. Look, I, I will make sure you see the video afterwards and you know we can, we can Monday morning quarterback the details of what we'll, goes we'll down. We'll break down the film. Yes, that would be great. Um, but I'm really excited that you're on as well because you have a new book that's coming out soon called The Bezos Blueprint. Tell me about what inspired you to write the Bezos Blueprint. Oh, I can't, I can't wait for it because it's, I believe it's my best book because it gets into so many other categories of communication that I had not had the opportunity to explore in my previous books. You mentioned the presentation secrets of Steve Jobs. That was all about how to give a better presentation. The, uh, I wrote a book called Talk Like Ted, which is about giving a Ted style presentation but The Bezos Blueprint is the first book which allows me to take a deeper dive into elements like writing, the written word, how to write better, how to write more clearly and more effectively, and, yeah. and how that applies to presentations. I got into uh, metaphorical language, storytelling, all based on Jeff Bezos. So here you've got a leader, who, an entrepreneur, who had an idea in 1994 that who took that idea and transformed it into, I argue, the world's most influential company, the company that has the most influence over your life. Mm -hmm. But what's remarkable about it is that he, Jeff Bezos, created mechanisms, strategies, especially for communication, that he not only pioneered at Amazon, but fuel the company's astonishing growth. And those mechanisms, those systems, are still used today by many entrepreneurs and many CEOs who have left Amazon, who worked with Bezos, mm -hmm. and who just blatantly copied his communication tactics. Yeah, and those sure. are Those are the people I talked to. Cool. And that was the most fascinating part of it. What did you learn from working with Bezos that you applied to build your own company. Yeah. And that's why it's very focused on, uh, I, I think it's really good for entrepreneurs especially, entrepreneurs and leaders yeah. in any field. And when you were telling me about the new book that you had coming out and how it applied to the insurance world, it was like entrepreneurship, leadership, communication both internally and externally, um, presentation tactics, right? I loved, we'll get into it in a little bit, but I loved the whole concept of where PowerPoint is necessary and where it's not, right? So I know a couple major highlights, I think, that apply to the insurance world right off the bat are storytelling, making something, taking yeah. something that's complex and communicating it simply, and then the final one is writing. Yeah. It's a big pain point for a lot of people in the insurance world. It's, you know, for example, we're about to hire someone on our marketing team and we had to eliminate a bunch of candidates based on their writing skills and the writing samples they sent through. It's something where I don't want to be editing everyone's content that they're putting out, right? So 
with all that said, why don't we jump into storytelling? Sure, let's start with that. that's a good place for you to start. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So tell me about how Jeff Bezos used storytelling and maybe some of the unique things that you found out when talking to those folks yeah. and researching the way that he operated at Amazon. Jeff Bezos is not only a storyteller, he knows a lot about storytelling. Uh, one person told me that there was a meeting uh, for Amazon Prime when they were coming up with, uh, with some of their original shows. And Bezos walked into a meeting and he didn't like the way some of the episodes were being shot because he said, that's not good storytelling. You need this and you need that and you need a cliffhanger and you need this. Wow. And so he understood narrative. Yeah. And he understood it in a, in a very, uh, you know, uh, essential degree. But what I, what I learned is that any entrepreneur, there's a very simple formula for storytelling, and it applies directly to entrepreneurs who have a fresh idea or a new product uh, or a new innovation to sell. And that's the three-act structure. Three acts. The three-act structure. Three acts. Three-act okay. structure. Gotcha. Three-act structure is historically, and this does go back centuries, just a great way of writing books, memos, uh, current presentations. And the three-act structure is pretty simple. Act one is the setup. That's the current world. That's the status quo. This is what the world looks like today. Act two is the challenge. And in a, in a Hollywood movie, for example, the, the middle hour is act two. And this is the way screenwriters look at it, too. Okay. It has to be laid out this way. Act two is the challenge. That's when the hero, on the way to achieving their goal, hits hurdles and roadblocks and meets villains obstacles. and also obstacles along the way. And then, of course, Act 3 is the resolution where everybody lives happily ever after. When you listen to Jeff Bezos tell the Amazon story, he breaks it up into a perfect three-act structure. Huh. And when he, whenever he tells the story publicly, so it's really fascinating to me, and, and he, he tells the story pretty consistently. So act one, if you go back to the setup, the Amazon origin story does not start in 1994 when he originally had the idea for Amazon. It starts 30 years earlier when he, Bezos was born to a single mother in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And during the summers, he worked at his grandfather's cattle ranch in Texas. And there he learned values like grit, tenacity, and hard work the values that would serve him well as an entrepreneur. Uh -huh. Later, after college, he's working at a hedge fund. We're still in act one. Okay. We're still in act one. We're setting up the scenes, okay. introducing the characters, why the, why the adventure started. He's working for a hedge fund in New York, and he comes across a startling statistic at the time. The internet was growing at 2,300%. He always uses that fact the 2,300%. Well, in Hollywood, that would be called the inciting incident. There has to be an incident to get the action going. Otherwise, there's no plot. There's no story. Okay. He realizes he wants in. So he decides, through a process of research, I'm going to focus on books. I think books would be effectively sold over this thing that's growing 2,300%. So he and his uh, then-wife, McKinsey, get into a car, and they drive out west to Seattle. The adventure begins. That's a road trip. 
there's a popular genre of movie called The Road Trip. So oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, we're gonna take a road trip west. <laughs> That's act one. He's setting up the scene. And then he transitions into act two. Act two remembers the challenge. That's the hurdles. The very next thing Bezos often says is, but success was never guaranteed. We ran into a lot of roadblocks and hurdles along the way. In the year 2000, during the dot-com bust, Amazon lost 90% of its value. Critics wrote it off. It's Amazon.bomb. It'll never survive. But we were focused on the customer. If we obsessively focus on the customer, we'll thrive. We'll survive and thrive. That's act two. Okay. And eventually act three is the resolution, which is how Amazon has not only transformed itself, but transformed the world in so many ways. 1.6 million employees as of today, and Amazon Web Services hosts more than 1 million customers, which is why I, I suggest that it's the world's most influential company. Because even if one out of every two households in America has a Prime account, so we're all using, most of us are using Amazon to I'm buy one our goods. You're yeah. one of them, I, so am I. But even if you had never purchased anything on Amazon, do you watch Netflix? It's served on Amazon services. Uh, do you Amazon, Amazon Web Services, Amazon, right. AWS. Yes. Do you Zoom? That's hosted on AWS. Uh -huh. So it has more impact on your life than any single company. That's the resolution. That's the transformation that it's made. And every act three isn't just a resolution. It's not just wrapping up a story. It has to have some kind of transformation. So if you look at it, uh, I'm sure you've heard of like jo uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. Yes. It's like a 12-step journey that every hero throughout all the centuries sort of takes. He identified a pattern. Okay. The three-act model simply overlays that pattern. You don't need the, the, 12 the 12 steps of the hero's journey, just the three acts. Mm -hmm. uh, but every Hollywood movie has three acts. And I argue that every good origin story, especially if an entrepreneur has an origin story about where they started, the three-act structure is really, really powerful. That's super cool. Where do you think he learned this stuff? He said so. He said by, again, when he goes, when he was in Texas, uh, working at his grandfather's cattle ranch, he became a voracious reader. Okay. And a, a local benefactor donated hundreds of science fiction books to a local library. So he spent hours reading those science fiction novels, which would eventually inspire him to build a space company. But he's a voracious reader. And that's something else that, uh, one of the reasons why I like talking to you is because I know you're a reader. Most of your listeners are readers. Yep. And I, I have the whole chapter in the Bezos Blueprint about yeah. the power of books and reading. Because Bezos himself says, you need to read to learn. And he would have these reading uh, groups and reading circles and senior leadership book clubs. But it all came from him. Mm -hmm. So it, it really is true that leaders are readers. Yep. Leaders are readers. I always remember there's like a famous photo of Jeff Bezos in his office back in the day where it's like Amazon is almost like spray painted on like a big banner. And he's like, you know, it's yep. way back in the day, right? Where it's like his computer's huge and it's just got a really photo. messy office. Yep. Yeah, that photo is so cool. Do you, did you, do you have any knowledge about that photo particularly? 
No, but I, I have spoken to a lot of people who work side by side yeah. with Bezos. Yeah. Um, and, and they have some fascinating stories. But one was uh, Anne Hyatt. So okay. Anne Hyatt worked literally two feet from Bezos, uh, shoulder to shoulder, one uh -huh. desk. And remember back then they used to have, they weren't real desks. They were Home Depot doors that were fashioned into desks. Yes. Do they still do that? And they still do that because okay. I know somebody who went to Amazon headquarters to visit and they, and they had those. So okay. I don't know if everyone's using it, uh -huh. but that too is a communication device. Everything communicated something. Yeah. That was a symbol so I wrote an entire chapter just on symbolism. Mm -hmm. Everything was a symbol mm -hmm. to Bezos, and the door was a perfect example of a symbol. Yeah. Because no matter how big we get, we're still going to be frugal. We're still going to be tight. We're going to be very conscious of how we spend our mm -hmm. money. That desk is a reminder of frugality. That's super cool. Isn't that amazing? But he's, he's do you see how consciously he is thinking about these things? Yeah. Day one. Hey, many of your listeners probably have heard of the phrase day one. Day one is a Bezos phrase. Mm -hmm. It's a metaphor. I have a whole chapter on metaphor because metaphor is so powerful. Uh, Bezos is a master of metaphor. He planted seeds. He created two pizza teams. Mm -hmm. um, he preferred uh, missionaries over mercenaries. Uh, and, and, ah. But day one is his big metaphor. So he said in one of his shareholder letters that it's, well, actually, I think it's, it starts from 1997, his first letter, okay. and he continued the metaphor throughout 24 letters. It's always day one, which means it's always the, always think like an entrepreneur on the first day that they're starting their company or launching their idea. Yep. Be nimble, be aggressive, always learn something new. Be a learn-it-all, not a know-it-all. Day one is not a thing. It's not a physical thing. It's a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Go to Seattle, go to the headquarters building in Amazon, and it's called the day one building. Cool. So everything is taking the metaphor and extending it as a symbol, but always reminding people that that metaphor is a key value of what we do. Yeah. It's a mindset for innovation. Right. That makes a lot of sense. But that has to come from the leader. It has to come from the top and it has to be consistently communicated, mm -hmm. which is why day one is in almost every single shareholder letter. He's constantly reminding you uh -huh. that, and he ends the shareholder letters with, remember, it's still day one or it's always day one. Okay. And those shareholder letters, those are broken down in three acts? Not yeah. always, but okay. when he tells a story or he introduces a new product or a new service, yeah. uh, I analyzed all 50,000 words of 24 shareholder letters. Uh -huh. And that was fun. Uh, That's I, a serious I, amount of I, letters to go through. I loved it, but here's why I did it. Okay. Again, getting back to this writing skill, maybe this is a good segue into writing. Uh, a former executive, um, a former venture capitalist and former Apple executive who lives in Silicon Valley uh, once told me that uh, when I was talking to him about Bezos, he said, oh, make sure you analyze those shareholder letters. And I had already started on, on that yeah. path, uh -huh. but I asked him, why? What's so interesting? And he said, oh, th those are some of the most magnificent, clearly written memos uh, and articulation of ideas that you'll ever read. Mm -hmm. And he said, I think those letters should be taught in every business school. 
And wow. then he added, if I were young, if I were 20 years younger, I'd want to teach the class, <laughs> but I don't have the energy for <laughs> right, it. Right. And then I was speaking to uh, John Doerr, okay. who is um, a billionaire and the first uh, professional investor who invested in Amazon. Okay. And he too said, Carmine, make sure you look at those shareholder letters because mm. they're beautifully written. And then finally, Mark Randolph, who was the co-founder of Netflix, when I told him that I was working on a book on Jeff Bezos, guess what he does? He picks up a folder from his desk and he said, you know, do you know what's in here? I said, please, no, tell me. Uh, Jeff Bezos's original 1997 letter that he first wrote huh. about Amazon. He goes, I refer to it once a year. <laughs> so that's when I decided, Patrick, maybe we ought to look at the shareholder letters. <laughs> There's gold in the letters. There's got to be gold in the letters. <laughs> and that's where I started learning more about uh, the written word. Okay. Amazon is a culture. Uh, it's a writing culture. They teach people writing. Mm -hmm. They have classes on writing. Mm -hmm. And if you want to uh, advance within Amazon, you need to be a good writer. Is, Imagine that. Is there a general <laughs> formula for writing? Like, and, and I guess I think we should categorize which writing we're talking about. For example, if I'm emailing an employee or if I'm maybe slacking or teamsing an employee versus I'm emailing a customer or I'm emailing a partner, a vendor, a potential partner or vendor, what, is there a formula associated with one of those categories that you think is important? I think good writing is good writing. And most people are afraid of writing. It has traumatic reminders of English grammar lessons. So what I had to do is go back to writing school. Okay. So for the last couple of years, as I was researching and, and writing this book, I went back to class. I reread some of the most popular best books on writing, and then I went one step further and talked to many of those writing instructors who had written those books. Okay. And you learn a few things. One, people are afraid of writing, which is a very common anxiety to have, and it's okay to be anxious about writing or to think that you're not a good writer because writing is supposed to be hard. That's why so few people are good writers. It is hard. Mm -hmm. I, I heard a podcast with Jerry Seinfeld and Jerry Seinfeld was talking, they were asking him about his writing process. Uh -huh. And he said, staring at a blank sheet of paper is like pushing a wheelbarrow full of bricks in the mud up a hill. Writing is hard. Yeah. I can empathize it's, with that. It's supposed to be hard. So yeah. give yourself a break. Uh -huh. uh, not everyone is Hemingway, and that's okay. But there are some, I'm not going to call them rules, but generally accepted tools or principles okay. that will make anybody a much better writer, whether you are writing notes that you're going to present, or an email, or a memo. One of them, and I think the most important one that everyone seems to agree with, is passive versus active sentences. Okay. Passive versus active. So let's go back to English grammar school. Yeah, tell me more. It's passive, been a while for me. I know. Passive versus, <laughs> I, I know. I had to remind myself of these two. Passive versus active. So an active sentence is where the subject of the sentence performs the action. Simplest example, the boy kicked the ball. 
Passive is when the subject receives the action. So the boy was kicked, uh, or, or the ball was kicked by the boy is passive. The boy kicked the ball. That's an active sentence. Active sentences, again, as I've learned, are clearer. They're easier to understand. They get to the point faster. They use fewer words. So if that's all you do is think, let me transform more of my sentence into the active, subject, verb, object, mm -hmm. you'll be a significantly better writer than the majority of people. That's a really good so, point. Keep, keep that subject first. So, and it, uh, it applies to almost everything, and I, I did notice that quite a bit in the Bezos shareholder letters. And I have a graphic where uh, I, I use Grammarly and some other software tools yeah. to look at the quality of the writing. Yeah. It improved significantly over time. From 1997 to 2021, it improved a He's lot. He's becoming a better writer. Every time you write, you become a you little become better. better. Yeah. And, and here's what's extraordinary is uh, like Grammarly will have, uh, a, there's a tool that examines just how uh, well written mm -hmm. a document is. And it's based on a number of different metrics. Well, if you put Bezos's letters in all of those, as the information got more complex, as the letters got longer, the writing got better. Hmm. So it is possible to get much better at writing if you follow just a few uh, prompts. And I think yeah. this whole idea of passive versus active, I think that's the, I think that's the most important and yeah. very simple to follow. Uh, Jeff Bezos founded Amazon in 1994. That's active. active. Jeff Bezos, subject, does what? Founds. The subject, uh, yeah. the object. The object. Uh, rather than uh, Amazon was founded by an entrepreneur named Jeff Bezos in the year of 1994. Well, now it's a long sentence. It's a little convoluted. It's very simple just to go yeah. subject, verb, object. Subject, verb, object. Yeah. Okay. And they even teach that in the military. Because oh. as I was researching this, I, I had this amazing opportunity to speak to different military groups. I saw that. Yeah, yeah so I've, I've spoken to Marines. I've spoken to Top Guns. We could have a whole oh, podcast man. on that. I've spoken to Green Berets. Okay. And writing is an essential skill because when you are briefing a superior officer, they don't have a lot of time. Mm. They want to read a memo and they want to get to the point. So this whole idea of subject, verb, object, passive versus active, they really go into that whole idea. So th there are other tools and other rules, but I think that is the simplest to follow. And since most people don't think about it, it'll make you a significantly better That's writer. That's a great takeaway. Carmine, have you heard of Scott Adams? Sure. Um, he has an excellent blog post called The Day You Became a Better Writer. Are you familiar with that? Or have you seen that? I've read some of Scott's work, and I know that he is uh, really into persuasion and communication. Yes. That one I've not read and I wish I had before the book was put to bed, yeah. but yes. I, no, no worries. I'd love to hear that. I'll send it to you. It's super, super quick, hmm. but it is basically about persuasive writing and simplification. And Excellent. it's, it's ironic because a lot of times I think school tells us to be, to write a 30 page essay for a persuasive argument. Right. But he talks about how a lot of times that can be a horrible strategy when you're trying to persuade someone, especially via email. So I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you after, but it's something that I've really enjoyed and I've really enjoyed teaching to the folks that evolve because I'm like, especially like me when I'm trying to move through my day and it's like I get 
a six paragraph email, I'm like, I don't even want to read this thing. Oh, you know? exactly. Okay, I'll give you a tip for that. Okay. Uh, this is something I learned from Amazon and they learned it from the US Army. Okay. So all of this just comes full circle. Okay. Uh, it, almost nothing is completely invented from scratch. Uh, someone sort of copies someone else and then adapts it. Mm -hmm. And that certainly has to do with writing because we've had centuries of the written word, so people have kind of figured things out. They just adapt it in different ways. Okay, if you're writing an email, here is the Amazon method because this is what they teach people. This is what they teach executives at Amazon. Put the bottom line on top. In a subject? Not only in the subject, but the first sentence, and you could even bold it. Often they bold it. This is the one thing you need to know. They don't, don't wait for the conclusion at the bottom. Bottom line, what's the bottom line? So they'll ask you, what's the bottom line? Put it up top in bold, one sentence. They call it bottom line on top, BLOT, as an acronym. Do you know where they learned that from? U.S. Yeah. Army, that in the 1970s started teaching BLUFF. BLOT, oh BLUFF, bluff. okay, okay. Bottom line up front. They just ah, changed they the letter. it a little bit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, but when I was talking to the Army guys, they said, yeah, Carmine, you know we've been doing that for decades, right? That's like, that's that's common. There's an old book in 1971. Yeah, this is stolen. This yeah. is stolen from stolen. us. But if Amazon wants to think they uh, they take credit for it, then that's fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is what it is. But uh, Carmine, you mentioned in regards to writing, the year 1066. What is the significance of the year 1066 oh, on writing? Oh, you caught on to that. Yes. Well, I'm sort of a history buff. Okay. And that is the year of the Norman invasion um, in, in Great Britain. Um, and in that year is when the historians will tell you that language began to change from the Anglo-Saxon Germanic words, which were very, uh, very short, very short, one-syllable words, to the Latin-based romanticized language. And the, the French and some of the romantic languages became part of the uh, legal jargon. So when you read a legal document, your eyes glaze over, don't they? Beca for most people, because- I'm in the insurance world, <laughs> so reading contract is, is contract, one of my jobs. Exactly. So I, I have a little bit more gas in the tank, I think, than most, but I hear what you're saying. Uh, for the average person, you would not speak in that way. That's not conversational language. Right. That's not ancient language. The most ancient words, even Winston Churchill talked about this, if, when you're trying to persuade people and get people to action and move people and, and speak with urgency, use the more ancient words. And he was speaking about pre-1066. The romantic languages uh, and the Latin-based words are longer, multi-syllable, more confusing, uh, and more convoluted. So if you go into one of these uh, writing tools, like I did, like Grammarly and others, uh, Word has something uh, very much like it now. They'll analyze, when they look at the quality of writing, they, they look for words that are too long, uh, mm. too Latin-based. Uh, those are fine in some, category, in some cases, but often you can use a short word to replace a long word. Okay. Uh, I really like that. Yeah. So, so uh, what's a what's the long word for lying? Uh, uh, like prevarication? Uh, no, he lied. You know, it's like yeah. you can always find the shorter word yep. for this longer word. Uh -huh. And that's something that these uh, 
software tools will analyze. So when I looked at, I analyzed all 24 shareholder letters that Jeff Bezos wrote. I put them in, in this software tool uh -huh. and it spit out something pretty amazing. Okay. Uh, the average grade level that Jeff Bezos writes for, what do you think it would be if you were to put a grade level on it? Uh, who do you think it would be made for? Uh, third grade, eighth grade, high school, college. Who do you think a grade level would be written for? If you had to put a grade level on Jeff Bezos's writing. Third. Ninth. Ninth? Ninth. Okay. Which is at eighth to ninth grade level is actually not bad. Third would be a little too simple. Okay. High school, now you're starting to get into a few longer words and longer sentences. Uh, college or PhD level, very hard for the average American to understand. And that's not a knock on anyone. Mm -hmm. that, that's actually the way they look at good writing. Okay. Because good writing is not supposed to be complicated. Hemingway if you put Hemingway's books in these software tools, it too will return a grade level of about eight. Uh, huh. Now, the, the concepts that you're talking about can be very complicated yep. and very dense, but the more dense and more complex the subject, the simpler your explanation should be. I almost it's think that- It's really interesting. It totally is. I almost think that simplification is, it's like a sign of intelligence. Because it truly shows that you understand the material enough to break it down, to explain it to almost anybody. I'm curious, though. Bezos, is, Bezos even said that, that simplifying things is a sign of genius. Wow. Yeah, that, why, why do you think it, it's so easy to buy something on Amazon? I mean, that, that was his whole focus in 1994 yeah. when people didn't even know what the internet was. He said that was the number one question. What's the internet? So, so you, you can't make it complicated. Everything about the explanation to the design to how people use the product had to be remarkably simple. Let's say we're talking about third grade level. Are you not simplifying to that level because maybe it'll come off like condescending? Or is there a reason, is the oversimplification, like what's the downside of that? I think you need more... Uh, words that adults might understand because you would have to strip Valid. out too many uh, even basic words that you and I would use uh -huh. uh, in conversation. Yeah. If you spoke, that, that's a uh, uh, see Jack run, see Jill run. Uh, so that would be a little too, too simple. But yeah. it does surprise people that the best writing is eighth grade, ninth grade language. Eighth grade is even better. And at Amazon, I did see a memo in a writing class that says strive to write to an eighth grade level. Huh. So they're even teaching that to Amazon executives. Huh. If you start writing for a PhD, uh, it sounds academic and it sounds kind of boring. Man, I got to give a shout out to my eighth grade teacher, Mrs. Painter, and uh, <laughs> my freshman year high school teacher, Miss Purcell. <laughs> They, did, they honestly were great, great writing teachers. They, I, I have to say, I have to give huge credit to yeah. St. Ignatius, especially in San Francisco. For, oh, excellent. Great. Uh, honestly, maybe even more than my college education, which is um, interesting. But that's really, that truly is where I, I personally got the most value and knowledge about the way I should write, the way I should mm -hmm. write persuasively. And you can always get better. Like I said about the Bezos letters, he improved over time. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and he improved substantially over time. Again, if you look at the letters and how they're scored and the quality of the writing, he got a lot, he got a lot better as time improved. Mm -hmm. But remarkably, when he talked about more complex subjects, uh, and, and so that to me is, is effective writing, mm -hmm. which is why some people have told me why Mark Randolph says, I always look back at this letter because yeah. it's not only well-written, but he also always had some really good nuggets of information and wisdom that could help people in their entrepreneurial journey. That's super cool to hear. Carmine, is there like a specific shareholder letter that you think people should review or reference if you had to pick one or? Um, There's two. Okay. There, there are two. Yeah. Uh, look, if Mark Randolph, the co-founder of Netflix, keeps the 1997 letter in his folder on his desk, then I think it's safe to assume we should credit the 1997 letter. Okay. So that's the first letter. That's where Jeff Bezos explains it's always day one for the internet. And here's, here is our vision. He begins his first paragraphs with customer obsession. And that becomes one of their primary values is being obsessed with a customer. And that's another thing about great uh, writing and great leadership and good communication. As the leader, you have to set the tone, but you have to consistently communicate it. So in every, almost every letter that I analyze, customer obsession is a very important theme. Hmm. He comes back to it each and every time. And it's the first uh, principle. If you go to the Amazon website, it's the very first leadership principle that everybody should know before they go in for an interview. Yeah, yeah, cool. The customer obsession, what does that mean? Hmm. But it starts from the top. If somebody just, if, if you as the leader simply write about something or you throw something out there and you don't return to it consistently and clearly every time you have a conversation, then it's not really part of your mission. It's not really part of your values. Yeah. So I think the 1997 letter is very important to read. But also, if you want, just want to be motivated, uh, the, his last letter, which oh. is at technically 2020, published in 21, and then he retired, stepped down as CEO in 21. So the 2020 Amazon shareholder letter goes a little bit more into uh, motivation and uh, some uh. of Bezos's guidance on, uh, you know, not, not letting the naysayers, you know, tell yeah. you that something's not possible. He, he kind of reviews the history of Amazon and how it was written off. And uh, so- That's I, fascinating. I, yeah, was it kind of like a farewell? It was because he knew that was the last letter. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, huge takeaways when it comes to writing. And again, for those that are listening, Carmine's book, what, what, what date is it going to be out? Just so they, so they, do you it's, have a date? It's in November. It's November 15th. November 15th. Yeah. Okay. So they can um, get more detail on those specific sections. I really like the way that you start the book off talking about Jeff Bezos eliminating PowerPoint, <laughs> right? Yes. And I know yes. there's some, some uh, caveats to that. Can you expand on the story of him eliminating PowerPoint and how he replaced it? It's a fascinating story. Uh, and I think a lot of people now know that Jeff Bezos banned PowerPoint at Amazon. And I, I'm partly to blame. I was one of the first uh, people who, or one of the first writers who wrote about it um, several years ago 
when he first published it in a letter, he announced it in a letter. People at Amazon had already known about it, but he wrote it in one of his shareholder letters. So I picked up on it. I wrote more extensively about it. And those articles that I, th I think my first one was for Inc. Magazine. A lot of entrepreneurs mm -hmm. will read that. Totally. Th that became very popular. And so a lot of people have told me, as, while I'm doing the research for this book, they've said, oh, you know, I, I, I read that uh, Bezos banned PowerPoint over at Amazon. Is that part of your book? And I'll say, where, where did you read that? And then they'll show me some, they'll show me my article. It's like, yeah, I know, I, I, I wrote that. So yes, I, I know that already. Yes. I know that already. Uh, but it, it, it's a fascinating journey and it's a really important concept. So in September of 2004, Jeff Bezos surprises his senior leadership team by sending out a shocking email, and it was shocking at the time, saying that PowerPoint is banned uh, and, and no longer acceptable at senior leadership meetings. I see. That's when they all got together on a Tuesday and they pitched ideas and they talked through new innovations and new features. And he began to realize that PowerPoint as a tool did not force clarity of thought. Bullet points are not full sentences and paragraphs and, and thought through narratives. He wants to know the customer's journey from the beginning. How does a customer use the site? How will this new innovation or new feature improve their experience? What are they going to say about it? It's very hard to do that in bullet point form. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine 2004, the PowerPoints must have looked really awful back then. Yeah. Most people didn't even realize maybe we should put an image with a PowerPoint. It's probably uh -huh. just all bullet points. Uh -huh. So he realized very early on it wasn't effective. And so he replaced PowerPoint with what he called six pagers. Originally, they started as four pagers. Now they're six pagers. That's what they're called. Okay. It can be one page. It can be six. But the point is, it's a memo what Bezos calls a narratively structured memo with real paragraphs, like a title, a paragraph, subject, verb, object, uh -huh, uh -huh. real sentences. Huh. Uh, but so he, there's still bullet points in there? There can be bullet points okay. in there. Yes, okay. it, to break up the copy, okay. there can be some paragraphs, some bullet points, data that complements the narrative, mm -hmm. but he wants the written word. And their leadership meetings then began with what he called study hall. And it's a very huh. weird and different meeting culture. And it still exists to this day, even though he's not running Amazon day to day, because it's that effective, which is leaders will get into a room and they will read a person's memo quietly to themselves. They'll mark it up, they'll ask questions, and then they can have a discussion. But if somebody just gets up there and starts going through bullet points on a PowerPoint slide, they find it's not that effective. Mm -hmm. Here's the caveat. When I wrote Bezos Bands PowerPoint at Amazon, I should have been a little bit more clear. Good headline, but I should have been more clear at senior leadership meetings, at those meetings in which they were talking about new ideas, new innovations, and uh -huh. pitching ideas to each other. It's more of a discussion point. This doesn't apply to like... Customers, no, partners. because, and I'll tell you why. I know this firsthand. I work directly with executives at AWS, uh, so I was invited to work with senior executives at AWS uh -huh. to help them present the 
complexity of cloud computing more effectively to customers. Huh. And what did they send me to review? PowerPoints. <laughs> so they still use yeah. PowerPoint. PowerPoint uh -huh. is not uh, strictly banned, but this whole idea of starting a discussion in the written word, mm -hmm. I think is really powerful. And everything starts with writing, Patrick, if you yeah. think about it. Uh, when, I, when you deliver a PowerPoint, more likely than not, you put notes in the notes section. Yep. You write something. So I like this idea of starting with the written word. Let's, let's write it as a narrative. How does this whole thing kind of flow with quotes, with ideas, with examples, with statistics and data points, and then use PowerPoint to complement the narrative? I, I think that's a very effective way of communicating mm -hmm. information but it's another step. It takes creativity and it's it an extra step. I really think people can get a little bit overexcited by using slides. You know, I think like people starting off with, oh, well, I should start with putting all these slides together. I think that's the, the what you should do last. I like, I really think slides are most effective. We talked about this in our last conversation, but like to, to really support something that you're saying or the story that you're telling as opposed to like, here's this next slide, click. Now I wanna give you this information, click. You know, it's terrible, I can't stand yeah, it. Right, uh, and so that's why I, I love this whole idea of the six, they call it the six pager, the six page narrative memo. Yeah. Uh, because for uh, certain things like AWS, AWS was pitched in a six page memo. It does take a longer amount of time. Uh, but I've also talked to people uh, who have adopted this method at different companies, and it's a one-pager. Uh, give me yeah, a one-pager yeah. on it, which is uh, maybe a little bit more doable in, in most circumstances. Mm -hmm. But can I tell you an interesting story? I love research, and I love advancing a story. So after I wrote an article about how Bezos banned PowerPoint, I wanted to dig into it a little bit more for the book. Why? How? What happened? And I ended up talking to a former Amazon executive who was on the plane with Bezos when Bezos decided, you know, we should just write instead of doing PowerPoint. <laughs> he turned to the guy and said, can you send an email out to the leadership team on this? <laughs> and the guy's thinking, you got to be kidding, Jeff. They're not, this is not going to go no, over well. Go well. Send it tonight. Well, uh, when should they start, Jeff? Maybe, uh, maybe we'll ban PowerPoint in, in our meetings starting in a few months? No, for next Tuesday. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but Jeff Bezos was reading an extensive, very dense article by uh, Edward Tufte, and it was called The Cognitive Style of PowerPoint. So this is in uh. 2004. So what I did is I reread that article. I found the original article, and Tufte is very, Sweet. very critical about PowerPoint for those reasons. Yeah. That bullet points do not force clarity of thought. And one of the things that Tufty analyzed, he said bullet points can kill, literally. And he used an example from what was then, I think it was 2003, uh, the Columbia Challenger disaster. So Columbia, the space shuttle blew up on re-entry uh, in, into the Earth's orbit after a piece of foam had um, broken off upon launch. So when oh. it came back, that's when it burned up. So Tufty looked at the committee hearings that were done much later, you know, to analyze what went wrong. Part of it was that 
when that foam uh, broke off, that was a really critical element, but mm -hmm. it was buried in a bullet in a PowerPoint slide instead of like bottom line up top oh, or something. They, they probably could have fixed it or figured it out. Uh, and so Tuf Tufty calls uh, that particular um, PowerPoint that scientists used with NASA when they were you know, explaining, uh, here's what we saw and, and here's what's going on with the space shuttle. As it was still up there, they gave a PowerPoint. And Tufty called that PowerPoint a festival of bureaucratic hyper-rationalism. So in other words, you, you couldn't figure out what was important and what wasn't because wow. there were an endless parade of titles and bullet points and sub-bullet points. And, they, and then if I can do a sub-bullet point, I'll put like a little, those little stars and I'll make it smaller and smaller and smaller uh -huh. <laughs> as, uh -huh. as, it, as it goes down and flow. And, and that's when Tufty said that this is ridiculous. The important stuff is being buried. It's not coming out. It's not clear. That is the report or the scholarly journal that Bezos read in 2004 and immediately decided, let's try something different. Mm -hmm. And to this day, this is what's fun about doing this kind of research. I talk to a lot of startup entrepreneurs, Silicon Valley, all over the world where I speak, and they tell me these uh, strategies and tactics that they use. Hey, Carmine, we're really in a writing here. We use something called a six-pager. Or one person told me, we use two pizza teams here at uh, XYZ. <laughs> and I'll say, yeah, okay, that's great. You know, Bezos came up with that, the two pizza team, which is cutting down big teams into small enough teams that who can be uh, fed with two pizzas, right? Yep. So uh, now in startup culture, that's a big deal. The two pizza team. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Bezos came up with that. He uh -huh. invented that idea because he was thinking, how do we, how do I communicate this idea that smaller teams are more, more nimble, more effective? Hmm, how can I communicate this in an email? Oh, how about two pizzas? Enough to be, because people are going to ask simplistic. how many people should be on the team. And Bezos didn't really have an answer. So he said, eh, enough for two pizzas. <laughs> and now everybody uses the two pizza team. And I've heard the six pager. It's called the six pager. Every startup now, we do a six pager. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, you, <laughs> yeah. Know, you know Bezos nice. invented yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. And so that's part of the fun of mm -hmm. doing this is you realize that so much, or the flywheel, that's another metaphor. Flywheel. Have you heard about the flywheel? <laughs> well, the flywheel was a metaphor that Bezos, again, came up with, sketched it on a napkin as he was listening to a speaker. He said, God, this kind of, this, this whole flywheel uh, that if we have different divisions that uh, fuel the growth, it'll keep spinning and spinning and spinning and get faster and faster, like a, a mechanism, like in a car, a flywheel. Okay. That's what a flywheel does. So we're, we're going to build all of these different services and subsidiaries that will fuel the growth. And as one fuels the other, it'll go faster and faster and faster like a flywheel. Huh. Do you know how many times I have heard, because uh, I get this opportunity to speak around the world, and I, so I get to listen to the leader open a conference or open a meeting, a CEO, and they'll always say, uh, so this is kind of like our flywheel or this, you know, yeah. or two pizza teams or six pagers. They don't even know. And I'm in the back going, you know, that's Bezos. You guys are recycling this information. Maybe I should write a book about it because you're just recycling what he originally yeah. came up with. Yeah, yeah. 
So did you ever come up with a number for the two pizza teams? Like, because I mean, if we're talking XL pizzas, you know, versus larges, <laughs> you know, it, you know, getting the round table world, you got personal pizzas. Like, Patrick, it gets <laughs> it, it gets it, it gets funnier than that, man. It, it <laughs> he came up with a two pizza team, uh -huh. and no, I don't I don't ever recall him saying what size pizza, right. but. Maybe, you know what? I bet he did. I think he may have said two medium-sized pizzas now Ooh, that I'm thinking about. Okay. But anyway, two pizza teams. So I'm talking to Jeff Lawson, who uh, started Twilio. And Twilio powers a lot of the apps that we use. Mm -hmm. Jeff Lawson worked at AWS. He learned the two pizza team from Amazon. So he takes it to Twilio. And he says, you know, the two pizza team didn't work out for us, Carmine. But we found out that about... Uh, a small enough team to be fed with a box of bagels, about 12 bagels, seemed to be the trick. <laughs> so they, they call it the, you know, the, the box of bagels team or the 12 bagel team. Uh -huh. And then another guy- Must from be a, a New York guy. Yeah, from, exactly. <laughs> so from another startup, somebody said, yeah, the two pizza team didn't work for me, but we found a, better, we found a, a more effective analogy for us, Roman tents. I said, okay, mm. you got it. What's a Roman tent? Well, and the, when the Romans were taking over, they had uh, when they were taking over Europe, they had tents that were uh, that ha held entire teams. Their teams were made up of eight men, eight uh -huh. soldiers. So it was eight man Roman tents. Eight is a good number for our teams, right? Okay, so now they call them Roman tents. You know, the, the sounds Roman like a, tents sounds like a wartime CEO. <laughs> exactly, and actually, that CEO is a really good communicator. Oh. Jeff Lawson is a terrific communicator. So all of these people are trying to think of analogies and metaphors to relay complex information to their teams. Yep. You can take everything that Bezos pioneered at Amazon in terms of communication strategies, you don't have to use them directly, but adopt them mm -hmm. as your own, mm -hmm. or at least learn that writing is important, symbolism is important, storytelling is important, analogies and metaphors are crucial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a great transition to another big point in your book. The fact that Amazon was nicknamed America's CEO factory. Yes. Right? Yes. Can you expand on that? That, was, uh, that came out of an article in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, that too, I think, it triggered or inspired me to pursue this type of research. Very hard to get to Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is a, a very uh, under the radar, very well protected I'm sure. guy. Is he, is he a, at one point he was the wealthiest person in the world, I believe. It, but I think Musk may have uh, as of him. As of today, he's number three. Okay. And Musk is number one. Okay. Funny story about that. Okay. Very funny story. I, I'm getting distracted, but I, I like uh -huh. this story. I have to tell uh -huh. it to you before I forget. Uh -huh. So Jeff Bezos, when he, when it was first announced that he became the world's richest man, the world's wealthiest individual, I think by Forbes, um, he knocked Bill Gates off the perch. So Bill Gates was number one, went to number two. Jeff Bezos became number one. Bill Gates and Bezos live in Seattle. So every once in a while, they'll be at the same function. A few months after Bezos was named the world's richest person, he bumps into Bill Gates at a function in Seattle. Gates comes up to him, taps him on the shoulder. Bezos turns around and Bill Gates goes, thank you. 
And Bezos, without missing a beat, goes, you're welcome. <laughs> and both men laughed. They knew exactly what they were talking about. The first, number one, always has a target on their back. Mm. Nobody knows who number eight is. Eighth wealthiest. Yeah. I just saw the other day, some guy, so the CEO of Reliance Industries. It doesn't have that much of a ring to it. Mm -hmm. So that's why activists and politicians and anyone who wants to make a, a statement about like wealth inequality uh, or billionaires, yeah. they're storytellers. I've worked with politicians. I know how the sausage is made. Yep. They've got to get your attention. They're not going to get your attention with somebody you don't know. So they're going to go for number one, number two. But nobody talks about number seven, <laughs> who also makes thousands of times more than the average salaried worker. Yeah. Uh, but again, that's part of it. And that's why Bill Gates said, uh, thank you. Because it's always better to be number two richest uh -huh. rather than number one. And as we're speaking, who is in the news every single day, some of it by his own making, but every single day, who's the target? Yeah. Elon it, Musk. Elon Musk Because right as of today, he's number one. Yep. Totally. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating, but it, that's a true story. Jeff Bezos said that once at a conference. <laughs> cool. Um, so you said a common thread. Where were we? <laughs> you know, I, I got lost there, but I was actually thinking, um, well, I guess I'm curious. Did you say a common thread between those two guys that they're big storytellers? Uh, Bill Gates is a, a, an excellent communicator yeah. too. Yeah. As is Elon Musk is an interesting communicator. Very interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't call him a classic storyteller, but you can tell he does things at presentations, uh, during his public presentations that most people wouldn't try. So he tries these crazy stunts. Sometimes they don't go as planned. Mm -hmm. And he'll come back the next presentation and he'll do a different stunt. I like that. He's like always pushing the envelope. Yeah. Uh, but Bill Gates is uh, very well known as being someone who is a communicator and is constantly thinking, how do I write or communicate things in ways that people will understand? In 2014, he predicted the pandemic. Uh, Bill Gates gave a I, I think talk. I saw the, the, the video. Yeah. He, he predicted the pandemic. Yep. And uh, I, I listened to a podcast of Bill Gates uh, during you know, the, the COVID pandemic and he was really down on himself. He's like, you know, I keep thinking, how can I communicate this more effectively? People, it went over their heads. They didn't quite get it. So a lot of these leaders are constantly thinking, how do I communicate more effectively? Mm -hmm. And Bezos was one of them. We talked about this previously, but <clears throat> Musk and Bezos do get a lot of hate based on um, how much money they've made versus maybe the average person. Yeah. I always kind of think about this as they also brought more value to the table for the US, for the world yeah. than the average person. So it doesn't, seem, doesn't really bother me. Um, yeah. I have Amazon Prime orders coming to my house today. Of course, even, <laughs> you even know? critics have Amazon orders coming to their house. Right, right. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's been a, a, an interesting journey of discovery for me as I've been writing and researching the book on Jeff Bezos, here's something interesting, Patrick, and I think it just speaks to psychology. If you ask 10 people for their opinion on Jeff Bezos or any billionaire, you will get 10 different answers, completely different answers from people who have never met the man, but they all have an opinion. 
But I had this unique perspective because I was speaking at the same time to the people who knew him best. And when you ask the people who worked with Bezos for their opinion, it's always exactly the same thing. It's consistent. They say the same thing, almost word for word. Always starts with visionary. It almost always has a demanding leader. And they always end with the very same opinion. I never would have traded it for anything. I never would have traded the experience of working for him for anything in the world. So what does that tell you? See, that's very different than the perspective of people who have never met somebody. Uh, so it's, it's fast. I, I think America has a very complex relationship with its entrepreneurs. And I've noticed that simply by writing about Steve Jobs and other famous entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. We admire the entrepreneur in the garage with an idea. Jeff Bezos, too, started yep. in yep. the garage the of a rented dream. home. But when they get too much money, and no one has a number, but too much, they kind of feel it, and, they're red, and it's a red flag. Mm. Uh, then they become skeptical. It's a very complicated relationship. So I decided, look, I can't get into that. Uh, if, you want, uh, if you want books on billionaires or wealth in America, there are plenty of books and plenty of subjects on that. Oh, yeah. And it's not a book on Amazon either. If you'd like to learn how to be a third-party seller on Amazon... You're not going to learn it from my book. There's plenty of information on that. Yep. It's very specific about a man with an, an entrepreneur with an idea who used some innovative visionary communication strategies to fuel his company's growth. Strategies that former employees used today to start their own companies. And what can we learn from him? And so, yeah. But I think that's, your, your audience is a very different audience, right? <laughs> These are people who are constantly wanting to learn. Mm. I, have, I have a very dear friend. He lives in a country. And I'm not going to name the country because I'm very fond of the country. Uh, but it's not a country that uh, celebrates entrepreneurs. And, and he's one of the few entrepreneurs because it's just not a culture that celebrates it. And I was talking to him about Bezos. And he said, you know, that reminds me of a joke a joke that goes around in our, in our country among entrepreneurs. He said there's two types of people. If you were to say, uh, if you were to tell them Jeff Bezos, one type of person would say, what can I learn from him? The other type of person would say, where are my keys so I can scratch his car? <laughs> two types of people. So my book is for the former. Okay. What can I learn from them? Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, you know what, as we move to the end of our conversation here, is there any other leadership characteristic or business strategy that Bezos or Amazon performed that you think the insurance world can walk away with? Anything unique that's like, wow, that he's an innovator, that's completely unique, and that's something that we can take and use in our business today? I think this, this idea and I wrote a whole chapter on it, on being a voracious reader. And I, I know you agree with this because you've seen it yourself. Almost everyone that I've ever written about, and I started to notice this pattern, everyone that I write about, most of the ultra successful uh, entrepreneurs read a lot more than the average person. So even when I'm speaking to uh, companies, the leader, the CEO is the one 
who's read my book most and well has read. read a lot of other books. They're the most well-read. A lot of people who are the mid to lower level managers aren't as voracious a reader as the successful the CEO. Um, and so the, the people who I've written about and my analysis of Bezos and Steve Jobs and others, uh, Elon Musk especially too, they, and Bill, Bill Gates famously reads more than 50 books a year. Um, a lot of the entrepreneurs who I've talked to, some of whom are in the book, read 50 to 100 books a year. But here's the secret. It's kind of interesting, is they don't just read books in their category. I guess that's the secret. That, that's what I'm trying to get ah. at. They don't just read insurance books because they're in the insurance field. And they don't just read books by other insurance people. They, yeah, they, they read those books, but then they also try to adapt and to adopt strategies and models from people in completely different fields. Got you. That, that's what made Steve Jobs so inspirational and so famous. And remember, Steve Jobs pulled a lot of ideas from calligraphy. How do I, how do I adapt the art world to better design? Yeah. So all of these, and, and Bezos especially, a lot of Bezos's uh, products, even products that we use, like the, uh, the Echo, the uh, Alexa, was actually inspired by science fiction novels. Huh. So now he's got Blue Origin, so it's all space all the time. Um, but again, he's, they're constantly reading, but a little outside of their field. Okay. Uh, I've got to do more research on that because I think there's an interesting theme there. I've seen it anecdotally, but there's got to be something there. They read outside of their field, which there, is interesting. There's no doubt that folks in the insurance world can take some really, really cool, exciting ideas yeah. in almost every department of their business yes. from yeah. other industries. I think that we are, uh, in the insurance industry, we are a little bit too complacent sometimes. Mm. So the other thing I wanted to mention was you talked about the woman who was sitting next to Bezos. And Hyatt, yeah. Yes, and you mentioned that when he, when Bezos would walk in in the morning, mm -hmm. he would have like four newspapers. Yeah, thanks and for And he'd read those before everything else, right? So again, Ann Hyatt is, uh, she went on to work for, uh, for Google and, and the former CEO of Google as well. Uh, but she was like an executive assistant back then and she's working for Bezos and she's a learn-it-all, okay? Just like your listener. Not a know-it-all. Constantly learning, constantly learning. And she begins to see a habit, okay? What, this guy is ultra-visionary, you know, uh, we're growing like crazy. What makes him different? And he always came in with a stack of newspapers. So at that time, most people had the printed newspaper. And he would come in with a stack of them, and he'd read, and he'd read, and he had books, and he was constantly trying to learn. That's why he banned PowerPoint. He was reading an academic journal. Uh -huh. Okay, so he's reading all of these ideas from different fields so that he, he's a constant learner. So Anne Hyatt said, hmm, maybe there's something to this. And during lunch, she would steal the newspapers off his desk and go into the break room and she'd be reading the same. Whatever he was reading, she started reading. Yeah, that's smart. a great story. That <laughs> very is very smart. Very smart. Very smart. <clears throat> well, Carmine, I want to be conscious of our time. We always end with five rapid fire questions. Before we get into those, though, where is the best place? for someone that's listening to find more of your content, whether it's other books you've written, uh, the presentation secrets of C Steve Jobs, Talk Like Ted, yep. uh, any courses that you might have, speaking engagements, stuff like that, where can they find you? I'm on all the, uh, all the social networks, but a central place would just be carmigallo.com. 
Okay. So if you can remember a good Italian name like Carmine Gallo, <laughs> G-A-L-L-O.com, that'll take you to my homepage. And on that, from there, all of my books, my newsletter, and uh, my social profiles as well. If, you want to, if you'd like to find me on LinkedIn, there aren't too many Carmine Gallos in California. Look for me. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm actually, I'm very, very active on LinkedIn. I, I respond and talk to a, anyone who sends me a message. I'm on all the other socials as well, but LinkedIn is, is a place where I'm focusing yeah. now. But yeah, CarmineGallo.com or go to Amazon, look for the Bezos Blueprint, and you'll find it. Money. We'll be releasing content from this episode on LinkedIn as well. So let's dive into these five rapid fire questions. Oh, you're making me nervous. <laughs> First one is interesting. <laughs> okay, now I'm really nervous. <laughs> it's not too wild. How long do you think it will take to have drones delivering our Amazon Prime packages? Ballpark. Uh, they're already uh, soon, months. They're already being. Ex they're already experimenting. Okay. Yep. And do you know how, uh, okay, I, these are rapid fires. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. It's all right. But one thing I've learned about Amazon, nobody unders, very, very few people understand how hard it is to, in a supply chain constrained environment, to take, uh, to order a product, click on it, find anything, and get it on your doorstep the next day. That's why Bezos has the bucks. Nobody else can do that. He created that, yeah. and the engineers who work at Amazon are, are always the ones who tell me, Carmine, what we do is so like miraculous that most people can't even get their mind around that. Never uh -huh. in history uh -huh. have you been able to just think of something, click, it's on your doorstep? Right. That's hard to do. Somebody should be getting that's credit hard for to that. Do. Someone gets credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's super exciting. A couple months. Um, question number two. What is the biggest difference between Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs? Bezos was more of a writer. Uh, he, he really focused on, uh, on the written word much more so than, than Steve Jobs did. Um, so I think it's writing. I think it's writing skills because Amazon, out of every company I've ever written about or met or talked to, uh, it is a writing culture. And so I, I think that was... A, one of the biggest differences, and Bezos thought much more deeply about communicating through the written word, the shareholder, 24 shareholder letters, uh, the mission, leadership principles, putting everything in writing. And maybe because he was thinking long-term, maybe he was thinking more of legacy, whereas Steve was very focused on, I'm gonna build a simple, well-designed, easy-to-use tool. Question number three. Who was the most interesting person that you spoke with when you were writing your book about Jeff Bezos that was connected with him? Several. Several. Uh, we've already yeah. talked about one, Anne Hyatt, Anne. Uh, because she worked two feet from Bezos very early on. So she was able to see uh, the early Jeff Bezos. And, and she's the one who told me a lot of information, like he wrote his own letters. So he didn't delegate writing. He didn't delegate marketing. He did it himself. And a lot of the, uh, the ideas that are written in my book that a lot of companies use that came from Bezos, he came up with, not from a marketing department or somebody else. There was collaboration. They evolved, but the strategies came from him. Okay. And, I, and I needed that validation, I think, when I was writing the book. Okay, cool. Question number four. 
What was the oddest thing that you learned about Jeff Bezos? <laughs> well, when it, Jeff Bezos is an interesting character, right? Let's, I'm sure. And I love characters and personalities. I talked to a guy who uh, was a photographer and was assigned an Amazon-related uh, uh, project for a magazine up in Seattle. And uh, he was on a gondola, because this was during ski season. Oh, no, it was in Aspen. But it was about Bezos and, and other leaders. So it was in Aspen, and he was on a gondola with Jeff Bezos. Huh. And this is at a time when Jeff Bezos was just coming up with the idea. And they're on a, <laughs> they're on a gondola together, and he's, just, he's a photographer. And Bezos turns to him and goes, hey, can I, can I give you my pitch? Can I work on my pitch with you? And, so he, and he said, Carmen, I think I'm one of the first people I actually heard the Amazon pitch that he was going to be talking about at the Aspen conference to oh, other leaders. Super cool. And he said, yeah, Carmine, if it was, it was so persuasive. If, yeah. By the end of that ride, if I had had the money, I would have invested with him. Because yeah. yeah. he was looking for investors at the time. Huh. He, Bezos was looking for $50,000 investors. Okay. And uh, I think he talked to, to about 50 people. And he got uh, one out of three. Yeah, so it was one out of three people who he pitched. Can you imagine being the ones who... Who didn't did, who buy did in? not buy into Amazon at I the know. time? He's actually addressed that. He's addressed that at a <laughs> conference. Someone asked him about that, and Bezos said, "Well, you know, it's interesting when you talk to these people years later and how people deal with these type of things. <laughs> you can tell they probably weren't dealing with it well." That's really yeah. funny. That's super funny. I have one quick point there. Jeff Bezos back in the day looks very different than Jeff Bezos now. He almost looks younger, don't you think? Is there something going I, on there? You know, have you have you seen like a Larry Ellison too? I think a lot uh, of you know a lot of people. He's a long term thinker, and he probably has he he has a ten. I wrote about this in in the book. You know, he's got a ten thousand year clock that he's building in the mountains of Texas. It's it's literally a ten thousand year clock. It chimes like once every thousand years. Again, it's a symbol ah. of long term thinking. Okay, I think these guys have just so much vision that they want to yeah. be young and healthy for as yeah. long as they can. Yeah. Hey, he wants hey, he, to, he wants like to it. see what happens when he as they explore space. Yeah, yeah I, I get it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Final question, personal question: Are You going to any Niners games this upcoming season? Uh, I. I love the Niners, and uh, I, I would love to go. I don't have season tickets, but I, I, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the, the classics. Uh, you know, Montana, Steve Young, who I've interviewed, one of the greatest leaders in any sports uh, team. Uh, Dwight Clark, who I've met. Uh, you know, so yes, I'm a big fan. Don't have season good, tickets, good. but I'd love to go. Okay, you'll have to let me know if you're going to any games. They're actually playing in Mexico City. This oh, year. are they? Yeah, okay. versus the Cardinals. I'm like they're one of the like international ex ex exhibition yeah. games. Yeah. yeah, seriously. So, I've never been to Mexico City. I'm like, mm. this could be a great time to go. The other one that I'm interested in is they they and the Giants are both in Chicago the same weekend, uh, September 10th. So that's that, the one. That's yeah, the weekend. Yeah. Of being Good in trip Chicago. to be in, in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyways, Carmine, thank you so much for You're coming welcome. on again. Very excited for your book release in November. I think it's going to be um, super valuable for everyone that's listening to this to get so much more detail on so many more elements of Bezos's leadership style and communication and the way that Amazon worked and how you can use that in your day-to-day -day writing, storytelling, general communication. So 
Um, always a wealth of knowledge, Carmine. We'll look forward to having you on again in the future. And uh, with that said, we can just wrap things up right here. Excellent. Thank you, Patrick. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. 